postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. In this episode, we are officially wrapping up the Padanar series, season five, I believe, Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars. I have had some absolutely insane feedback, emails, uh, emails that I actually have to, you know, forward to you, Max, so you can see them. Um, people thanking me for you and, and all the insight that you brought to the conversation. Uh, just so excited to finally have some real in-depth content that engages this this conversation in a really beautiful, beautiful way. So yeah, man. Um, so what we're going to do in this episode is we are going to do a Q&A. I've been receiving questions from different people, either on Facebook or by email or messenger, whatever it might be, asking questions about the content we explored throughout the series. Uh, we're not going to get to address every single question because um, uh, it's just not enough time. However, yeah. I've picked the questions that I felt were worth considering, but a lot of the questions I did receive, if you just listen to the series in its entirety, they <laughs> will be answered. And even some of the questions we'll, we'll look at today, we'll say, hey, check out the series, check out the series. Uh, but I just mm -hmm. thought, okay, you know, fair enough. They are worth maybe you know, giving some expansion on. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, Max, welcome back, bro. How have you been? Hello, everybody. Ah, uh, hey, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm uh, just eager to get this year started. I mean, I guess that's already happened. We're in February already, which I can already not process. Just the fact that time is passing at this point, yeah. I do not understand the passage of time. Like it's uh -huh. just, it's yeah. beyond me. But you know, all things considered, I'm doing pretty good. That's awesome, man. You know, you know, uh, the strangest thing happened to me the other day. I visited a friend. February. I don't know what February 3rd I went mm. to his place and he still had his Christmas tree with the lights on top. <laughs> and I just want to make a public service announcement here on the podcast to the thousands of you who are tuning in to hear this stuff. This is not okay. All right. Um, I love Christmas favorite time of the year guys, you know, put, you know, really February? Anyways, let me <laughs> let it's me stop late. right there. You know what? Let's let, let me be for real though. Like, do you? I'm just saying. I, I for me, I'm like February, December 26th. The tree comes down. <laughs> Got um, it. But I'm usually the guy who, if it wasn't for my wife and kids forbidding me, I'd put my tree up in like September. So, um, wow. Yeah, it, it comes up early, but down as soon as it's over. You know, so we're all we're all quirky. Um, but got yeah, it. man, well, welcome back. Welcome back, Max. Really excited to have you here with us. And we got a list of questions, bro. Got a list of questions from our series that I want to process. Um, mm -hmm. But before we go into that, I just wanted to um, kind of get your thoughts and your feelings on what the reaction to the series has been so far. How have you felt about that? And overall, how have you felt about how the series panned out in the end after we recorded that final episode? Mm-hmm. 
I think for me, I've been a little, not all the way disconnected from the reactions, but I think because you're more prone to get the notifications than I am, I only jump into those comment sections every so often. And so the engagement I've seen has been definitely like sizable. Like I, I've looked at it and be like, oh, well, people are really digging into this. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, obviously, like you said, you see more of it than I do. But as long as like, even if people are having negative reactions to it, as long as they're considering, as long as it's like getting the wheels turning in people's heads, I'm, I'm happy, you know, like I'm all for that. Um, I think for me, it's been really helpful. You know, since the last time we did this together, I've published one more uh, reframe video. You know, I was sitting on that one for a long time. Like the the process of getting it done was uh, a bit messy, but I'm going to keep working on it in whatever way I can. It's, you know, it's turned into this really weird, like back burner thing. But I've appreciated the fact that doing this podcast allowed me to really, I think, focus my thoughts a little more and think like, okay, what's actually necessary information and what's just me being a nerd and like giving details that maybe are interesting, but aren't like a crucial starting point for people, you know? And so like these conversations have been super helpful for me and my own thought process and refining how I present this. And I'm really grateful for that. So it's been cool. It's been really cool. I I have listened back through the series and found myself being like, oh, dang. I like at the beginning of this episode, I said, oh, here's what I want to cover. And then by the end, I've like forgotten that I said I was going to touch on something. And it just like is this awkward thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, I never said the thing I said I was going to say. But like that, that's that's what happens with conversations, right? Like it's unavoidable. So, you know, overall, it's cool. Awesome. Awesome, man. And I'm really glad that uh, you got that, that next video, the reframe series done. And I just want to remind everyone, like, you know, uh, if, if the pot in our series that we did is, um, it's difficult for you to get through because of, you know, it's about 15 episodes and they're almost roughly an hour each. Um, yeah. If, if that's like, wow, I don't know that I have the time to get through all that. Check out the reframe series. They're more bite-sized but it's just as powerful, just as powerful. So definitely check out the reframe series. And then if like, if you want some more expanded thoughts from Max and stuff, then yeah, our podcast is there for a, a time that is more suited for you uh, to, to go through 15 one hour episodes. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I've been really excited because I think for the, for the first time for a lot of people, um, they're able to, you know, like they've been listening to a lot of like the conservative perspectives on music. Um, and they've been hearing that all their life. And in their spirit, they know something's off here. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but something just doesn't add up. Uh, and for yeah. the first time, listening to this series, they feel like they, they, they feel like they're they, they're noticed, right? They feel mm -hmm. seen. It's like, yes, I've been feeling this, but you guys are now articulating it in a way I couldn't. And it's like, wow, I feel so seen and so like affirmed. We've even had people contact us who used to be in different genres of music who became Adventist or who through some series that someone gave to them abandoned that pursuit and are now mm. looking back and saying you know with renewed passion like oh man I, I want to plug back into that project I was doing whether it was you know whether it was mm. rap or rock or something along the lines some genre that they were leaning in on 
to spread the gospel and connect with people in their life. And, mm -hmm. and now they're finally able to like take this content and say, wow, like it's, it's liberating is the word I've heard a lot from people. It's like liberating, liberating, liberating. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, man. And I can't thank you enough for, for being willing to engage this conversation. We've even had people ask us, like I've had a lot of people from countries where it's bit harder to get the bandwidth to listen to all the episodes where it's more expensive you know internet service might be a bit slower um mm. more like in developing countries who are like oh can you guys make this into a book you know because i can't hear them all but i would i would totally read this so like i don't have the time i'm pretty sure max doesn't have the time but maybe what i'll do is i'll look into how much it costs to get someone to transcript the episodes um, and then they can send that through to us. We can add footnotes and, and, and I, you know, I, I know how to do all the self-publishing stuff. So that's, that's super easy. Mm -hmm. And that way people can have like a text version of it. Um, so yeah, maybe we can chat about that a little bit more, Max, but just throwing oh, it out sure. there is a wild idea, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm um, more than happy yeah. to engage this conversation further as much as people are interested in it. And like, I appreciate you giving me the platform to like signal boost my voice. Cause for a long time, I thought this conversation would just like never happen in adventism mm -hmm. and then it turns out it was like oh well it'll happen if i start having it with someone and then you know you mm -hmm. came around and it's been helpful for me to be able to say like oh we can actually get this conversation started in like a noticeable way so Absolutely. i i'm super yeah. thankful for that opportunity you know awesome awesome man hey well look last i checked this series has had over ten thousand plays and that was like a month ago that I checked. I haven't checked since. It could very well be up to 20,000 by this point. Um, there's been a lot of ads going around and a lot of shares and stuff. So uh, just be really exciting. So thank you, Max. And and I also want to thank you not only for the insight that you bring to this, but also the, the missiological and contextual like sort of uh, IQ that you bring to this. Um, oh, I think one of the things that we desperately need in the West, in our churches, is a higher missiological IQ. It's so low. It's really bad. Um, and and you also bring a lot of grace and nuance and, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, meeting people where they are while still not beating around the bush when it comes to some of the real ugly things that undergird the worship wars like racism and colonialism and Eurocentrism. So yeah, man, uh, look, the thanks can go on for hours. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'm going to throw the first question at you. Let me know. Is that cool? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Let's do it. I'm just, I'm just leaning over. You're looking at my screen here now. So, okay. So I'm just going to read them as they are in, in an order here. And sure um, we've only got, we've only got roughly maybe 45 minutes left now. So um, right. we'll spend a little bit of time on each of these, but there are a few, so not too much time. Yeah. However, I will repeat again, if at any point you're like, oh, I wish there was a little bit more there, please. Pretty much all of these, if you just listen to the whole series carefully, you'll get your answer. All right. So, yeah. all right, here we go. Um, question number one. I have heard many critics of contemporary Christian music argue that modern worship is all about me, me, me. And, and they'll quote, you know, they'll quote songs, you know, the lyrics all about me. Basically consumerism. Uh, some even point to texts in the Bible where Satan is talking about himself to say that there is a connection. So, for example, you know that text where Satan is like, I will ascend to the most, you know, to oh. the throne of the most high. I will sit on the, you know, uh, from Isaiah. Um, so people will point to that text and say, see, Satan's all talking about himself. And here's modern worship music. And people are saying I and me all the time. So 
What do you think about this? Yeah, I think I understand the nature of this critique. Um, I think it has a number of problems inherent to it. One, as, as far as it goes with the part about the, well, Satan says me, 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 or I, um, the, the usage of pronouns is just a part of speech. So I, I don't know that you can really draw a very strong analogy there. Like God also refers to himself in speech. So like it's just not, it's not, that doesn't really mean anything uh, outside of like projecting other contexts onto that or like reading those things through a certain lens. Um, speaking about yourself is not inherently satanic. Um, and if you do want to levy that complaint, this is something we've said throughout the series, make sure that in your criticisms of contemporary Christian music, you don't automatically just throw all of the Psalms out the window as well, because yes. you'll you'll find this exact same thing in the Psalms as well. Right? My soul thirsts for the Lord or mm-hmm. um, like, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The save me, O oh God, the waters have come up to my neck um, they've pierced my hands and feet. Like there's so much like I and me usage in the Psalms. And that's because it's, it's music, it's emotional expression. Sometimes it can be a corporate plural sense. Sometimes it can be second person, third person, first person. Mm -hmm. This is just how language works. Right. So I wouldn't read too much into that. As far as the critique about CCM being, um, self-centered, if you'll recall back to our old versus new episode, I quoted from this book, Protestant Worship Music, um, just reminding myself of the name of the author. It was uh, Charles Etherington. And he, we had some examples in this book of him pointing out how there was a shift in like 1700s and 1800s to what we would consider like modern traditional hymnody, Right. The, the songs that largely make it into our hymnal that we think of as like the old school, classic, time-tested hymns. And that same criticism was used, like it, he it's in the book. He's like, oh yeah, it was like a turn to just like this shallow, meaningless, self-centered, whatever. And I'm like, okay, y'all are talking about the stuff that today is seen as like the gold standard, the classics, the traditional, right? And Again, it's a matter of remembering we all live in a historical context and everything that was is traditional to us now was new and provocative and offensive to someone at some point. Like This is just a cycle that repeats itself and the documentation is there for it. Um, right. The other thing too, I, if I can say one more thing, because I feel like you can knock this, this critique or this question out pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> consumerism is a legitimate concern. But I think the levying that as a criticism kind of ignores the history of what music is. Um, music for most of human history has been a perf- performance art form, right? It is more like actors on a stage doing a live performance than it is like a sculpture or a painting, right? It doesn't have a fixed medium. It has to actually be performed live to be heard. And then all of a sudden the 20th century rolls around and we have audio recording. I don't think we had any audio recording in the 19th century. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a 20th century phenomenon. But all of a sudden with the advent of recording, music becomes a fixed medium art form, more like sculpture, more like painting, more like, I mean, if you're making the comparison, live music is like theater and recorded music is like film, 
right? Mm. Like the that the analogy is there. And suddenly music consumption becomes something that had literally never been before in human history. The idea of private consumption of music is, is very novel within like the last two centuries, right? Not even two centuries. And so for us to levy the critique like, oh, well, modern Christian music is consumeristic. Well, well yeah, because music itself and the economics of music have changed in so con consumption of music can even be a concept in the first place you could levy the same issue to like literature and books right like there's there's smut in like written literature there's daft nonsense and shallowly written books that are just mass produced and you know you could say the same thing about magazines or whatever but at the end of the day it's like okay is this consumeristic well there's consumeristic culture around traditional music as well right everything is an industry so is some of the music consumeristic? Yes, but consumerism affects everything, including traditional worship. Yeah, um, and I, I could go into details on that, but I don't want to linger on the topic too long. But like, if you want to critique consumerism, you have to critique the entire socioeconomic framework that we exist inside of because it affects everything. So Absolutely. that's what I'd say about well that. Well said, bro. Well said, man. I, I love it. And, you know, just, just to go back to the whole me, me, me point, you know, like I do remember when I was at Southern Avenue University, I had a professor and I took a class, um, a music professor, I took a class about worship. And mm -hmm. that was one of the critiques that he leveled against contemporary Christian music. And he used the same exact argument. And I've seen sermons where conservative preachers uh, critiquing contemporary Christian music will use the same exact argument, you know, mm -hmm. look at all these times, me and I, and me and I, and then they'll go to Isaiah, me and I, and me and I, you know, we're, we're quoting Satan, you know, like the, the, the me centered thing. And, and I picked up my hand. I was like, Hey, professor, um, what about Psalms 23? The Lord is my shepherd. You know, I shall not want. It's like, it's full of me and I, and yeah. literally his response was, Oh yeah, that's an interesting point. And then he moved on. He didn't, right even address it and i was like i got you bro that's a terrible argument <laughs> yeah so so yeah well, well said man i think there is a deeper thing at play with you know like me centeredness that is much deeper than the pronouns being used the, the mm -hmm. motive and there's so much more there but i think we've made our point so i'm, I'm ready to ready to go on to the next question let me just uh pull it up here yeah, man. um okay Oh, this one. Oh, man. This one is, I've heard this a lot. All right, here we go. Isn't it true that modern worship music is replacing deep theology with emotionalism? Youth today don't know their Bibles like they used to, but they all know the songs, most of which have no theological depth. All right, talk to us, Max. Cool. So there's something probably here to be said about sample size. Um, and the relationship of sample size to generalizations, um, it's not a good thing. I'm just going to work through this question backwards. So the first thing, these massive sweeping generalizations, like youth today don't know their Bibles like they used to, possibly true. But again, what's your sample size? Who are you drawing from? Because like you might have youth today who are the first in their family and generations to achieve the level of literacy they have, right? Like who, who are you talking about? Where are they coming from? Like, what, what are you talking about? Right. Um, but beyond that, um, they know all the songs is how it's worded in the, in what I'm looking at. Right. And uh, no, they don't, they don't know all the songs and neither does the person levying this critique. I don't know all the songs. 
I don't know every contemporary Christian music song. I mean, if you're going to be the person from the previous question saying, oh, commercialism, I'm like, yeah, commercialism is exactly why we don't know all the songs. There's way too many, right? Mass production, music industry. So songs are known in cultural contexts. There are people who listen to, I mean, think about how broad contemporary Christian music is as a designation. I have no idea what's on like the last probably five, six Hillsong worship albums. I have, I have no, I haven't even the foggiest idea of what songs are on there, except for like maybe one song. So it's, and like, I'm into suppose I'm supposedly into contemporary Christian music, right? My wife she probably couldn't tell you if a song was written by Chris Tomlin or not, because her consumption of contemporary Christian music is in gospel, which some people would even would argue they, they don't use CCM to refer to gospel music. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's this really massive overgeneralization to say like, Oh, they know all the songs. No, they know the songs they're exposed to. And some of that has to do with individual choice. Some of that has to do with advertising and marketing. And some of that has to do with community and what they're exposed to. So there's a bunch of bogus assertions in the question. And the question almost feels more like a bunch of assertions masquerading as a question. It's usually the case. But to take it in good faith, um, youth today don't know their Bibles like they used to. That's just a problem of discipleship. And if I can speak to one of the questions about, well, what should we be doing in worship? One of the things that is actually given as a positive instruction in the New Testament. So if, if you're the type who's looking for that and you're, you're clinging really closely to that uh, regulative worship principle and you need the exact instruction, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And Scripture reading in Adventist church worship services, as far as I'm concerned, is a farce. Um, like it's one verse or maybe like five verses at a time, which is barely the reading of scripture. And I think we would be way better. I personally wouldn't mind if we had some kind of lectionary and we were just like throughout the year, like reading the whole scripture or reading massive swaths of it, because at the end of the day, the church has existed as a worshiping institution in times and places when literacy just didn't exist or printing wasn't an option right mm -hmm. and while a lot of that is the middle ages like catholic liturgy involves a lot of reading scripture out loud right so yeah. this is the kind of thing where like you can't only blame the individual for not knowing the bible well frankly i know a lot of people i'm in bible studies online with people where they've been reading the bible their whole life and they have no idea what's going on because it does require contextualization it does require background knowledge right we should be doing this in community. So don't blame music or media or books or film or television or sports. Don't blame them for the church's failure to do discipleship. That's what I would say there. Um, and then isn't modern worship music replacing deep theology with emotionalism? Well, one, emotionalism is like a pretty pejorative word and it's kind of loaded because it inherently means excessive emotion. But if you were to just switch the word emotionalism with emotion, and you said, isn't it replacing deep theology with emotion? I would be like, okay, guess what the scriptures have? It's like theology conveyed through emotion, right? And this to me, one rings of the kind of quasi-Gnostic, quasi-Neoplatonist 
revulsion against the human body and human experience and human emotions, right? It's just like, uh, ooh, physical experience stuff. Uh, we don't like that. We just like the abstract and the intellectual and the spiritual, which are a higher plane of existence. Like you're, you're getting into territory that's like dehumanizing at that point. I think that's an opinion, but I'd stand by it. Um, the other thing, though, is there's a bit of a fallacy here, which is, again, people viewing the past through rose colored glasses. Not all of the old hymns are particularly deep. Mm. Like you, you, I think people confuse the nostalgia and the personal depth that they feel that they have experienced with a song. And they confuse that with the actual depth of the lyrics. For example, I would invite anybody to compare two relatively similar songs in, in my estimation. Um, How Great Is Our God and How Great Thou Art. Just compare those two songs, right? An old hymn and a contemporary song is probably like one of the biggest contemporary songs ever, right? Like How Great Is Our God, like that's huge. But like How Great Is Our God contains references to the book of Revelation. It contains a Trinitarian formula. It contains references to Philippians chapter two with uh, Christ receiving the name above all names, right? That's part of the bridge. Um, royalty language, um, yeah, just and light imagery from the Johannine tradition, like all of that is in there. And like almost everything in How Great Is Our God is some kind of scriptural illusion, right? It's just a mosaic of scriptural illusions. How Great Thou Art, between the four verses and the choruses of that song, that song, I can literally summarize every verse in one statement. Like one, Verse one, nature's pretty, how great thou art. Verse two, nature's pretty again, but this time there's birds, how great thou art. Three, Jesus died for your sins, how great thou art. Verse four, Jesus will come back, how great thou art. That's it. There is no further depth to that song. And there's barely conceptual connectivity between the verses. Like it's just kind of random topics. And like this really, I think the first two verses are kind of shallow. Like, yes, it's exploring the the wonder and awe of creation. Like, okay, that's cool. The Psalms do that. But like you did it two verses in a row. And the second verse is just, I go outside, I walk through nature and there's birds singing. And I looked at mountains. God's great. There's a simplicity to it. That's beautiful, but it's not deep. Like it's, it's not theological. It's, it's just like, okay, yeah, that's, that's, it's a bit trite. It's a bit cliche. Yeah. And I think the melody in how great thou art is kind of awkward. The verse melody, especially the chorus melody, that hook is out of this world, man. Like that then sings my soul. Once you get there, that song comes to life. And I mm. think that's why it's endured because it's catchy, right? Yeah. That melody is powerful, mm. but the rest of the song is kind of, hump like hokey and yep. whoop-dee-doo like I, it's not that deep so i would say like i think people need to be careful not to view the past through rose-colored glasses that that's what i would say about that so absolutely yeah and and i would just reiterate the point as well like um about discipleship like you know my kids love contemporary christian music um i i don't know that my kids have ever really heard or interacted much with hymns i mean they've been to a few mm -hmm. traditional church services here and there for different events and they've heard them but it's just not their generation. You know, they, they love contemporary worship music. Um, but 
you know, like I don't see the worship music as this is how my kids are going to learn theology. Like I teach them theology, you know what I right. mean? Um, and, and I think like the first and foremost, like if, if we're concerned about our youth, not knowing, not having a deep theology or not knowing their Bibles, well, well that the core of that is the home. Now, mm-hmm. if you've got kids, obviously you're going to have kids in churches whose parents aren't Christian, you know, mm-hmm. then I think this is where the church is, is responsible for them and for the other kids as well to have uh, very clear, direct discipleship pathways. And most of our churches don't. Most of our churches have zero discipleship pathways. We produce church members, but not disciples, right? Yeah. Um, and you cannot then turn around and say, oh, the fault is this all this contemporary Christian music. That's where the fault lies. It's like, yeah. no, not really. <laughs> yeah, you know, we need to have active, effective discipleship pathways that are deepening our kids' understanding of who God is and what he's like and the theological narrative of scripture, um, while also creating space to allow them to express their hearts and their love for God in 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 cultural expressions that are, you know, generational, generationally, you know, connected with them and not something that was happening a hundred years ago, you know. So, anyways, mm-hmm. you did, yeah, yeah, great, great answer. Let me move on to the next question. Um, okay, so sure thing. Um, are there any boundaries or rules for worship or is everything fair game in the name of culture? Yeah. So I would say to me, this comes across the most as a question that's asked, not in good faith. Um, because essentially what it implies is, okay, if you use the language of contextualization, then it's actually pure relativism or maybe just anarchy. Right. And, and I'm saying, okay, so can you identify for me which cultures you believe how, have no boundaries? Can, can you identify for me what cultures you believe have no limitations on acceptable and unacceptable behavior? Right. This is, this is the thing. Um, this is something I meant to talk about in like the Ellen White episode, and I'm seeing it kind of popping up here. So let's talk about mosh pits. Okay. There's mosh pit etiquette. Right. Um, when the astral world thing came up, and I'm only saying this in reference to Ellen White because the the senses of rational beings will become so confused that they can't be trusted to make right decisions. Right. That whole line of like, oh, if it's contemporary music, it's going to do that to you. Right. And it's going to cause a bedlam of noise and chaos and inhuman behavior. And so, you know, with the astral world situation where, you know, ASAP Rocky is performing, people actually died because they were trampled. And there's all this mismanagement and stuff that happened. Part of the discussion that happened online after this is like the metal and hardcore and punk communities kind of speaking up and being like, yeah, so we we've had mosh pits like since the 80s and we've been doing this and we have etiquette that says if you knock someone down, pick them up. You know, like uh, before we recorded the last episode we recorded, there was a weekend I was out in Toronto seeing band, uh, a band that uh, I know some of the guys in perform. And I, I was like, wow, COVID rages on. And yet here I am in a mosh pit. I got knocked down. Um, and the, the guy who knocked me down literally like fell on top of me, like really like I was like twisted over back, like sideways and he like landed on my hip. And the guy who knocked me over also picked me back up, right? And there's these videos circulating of bands being like, if someone falls down in the pit, what do you do? And the whole audience yells, pick them up, right? Like in an environment as chaotic and unruly and like legitimately meant to be wild as that, 
there is social etiquette. There are social expectations of right and wrong behavior. I'm not saying have mosh pits in church. I am saying you need to engage with cultures, musical subcultures, and other people in good faith. Um, are there any boundaries, rules for worship? I mean, yeah, read the scriptures that like, th that's what I'm advocating for is to not make up rules that aren't there, but go with what is there, right? Yeah. So we just mentioned, Paul said, devote yourself to the reading of scripture. So presumably in our worship, reading scripture should probably be a part of it, right? Um, presumably, we should be practicing the Lord's Supper because scripture tells us to do those things. Notice how that's not a please don't do X, Y, and Z, but like those kinds of instructions do exist in the New Testament as well too, right? Like if multiple people are having the gift of prophecy, only one person prophesy at a time or speaking in tongues, same thing, only like two or three people speaking in tongues at a time and please make sure someone's there to interpret or else cool it. Right. Uh, you know, first Thessalonians chapter five, do not despise prophecies, uh, but test everything to see whether it's from God hold on to what is good, reject every form of evil. Right. That's a, a d d instruction. That's part of Paul's larger framework of body theology and what that turns into in the context of Christian worship. Um, presumably don't do animal sacrifices anymore for all of the reasons listed out in the book of Hebrews. Right. Like that's a boundary. That's a rule. Those are things that we can intuit from the actual theological concerns of the scriptures rather than trying to like forcibly turn, say, okay, rock and roll, hip hop, EDM, R&B, uh, CCM, gospel, all of these belong in the category of uh, Asherah worship allegorically and all of the music from 19th century composers in new england belongs in the category of the lamb without blemish and here's my new arbitrarily anti-typical levitical system right like it just doesn't make any sense and i think that's what people are looking for so i would encourage the person asking this question please go back to our episode where we discuss the theme of sacrifice where we talk about what i call the over leviticalization of christian worship because and and also to the episode where we talked about the normative versus regulative rules of worship, because I think those are very fruitful conversations to have. Um, and it really kind of puts the framework there for you. Like, yeah, there's rules, but like it has to actually be there in the Bible, you know? That's so. right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. And I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why, you know, when you come to a culture with a sense of supremacy, you know, like our culture is more, no more ennobled, more civilized, more sacred, more holy, more mm -hmm. righteous, um, then you're always going to assume that the only way that these people can properly worship God is to first become like me, you know? So mm -hmm. like I flip the script on people and, and I say like, you know, what, what, let's, let's imagine that, um, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my ancestors are Taino, okay? Mm -hmm. um, a native culture, right? So very similar to the natives you find in the Floridas and throughout the East Coast, really throughout all the Americas, right? Um, worship style, the, the way of singing, the way of community, very, very similar. Now, imagine the Tainos managed to become a world superpower and take over the world, including Europe. And they walk right. into Europe and they say, in order for you guys to worship properly, you have to put paint on your face, you know, and you have right. to and you have to do these dances. And, you know, we're going to throw away your organs and we're going to burn your pianos because, you know, that's that's, you know, that's uncivil. That's the you know, like we would be like, dude, that's horrible. 
You know, like, right. why would you do such a thing? But that's exactly what we do in the reverse, right? We come in with the, mm -hmm. the sort of the European culture and we're like, hey, in order for you to worship properly, you got to put this suit on, you got to wear this tie, you got to, you know, like even back in the day, um, a lot of my... Um, my wife has a lot of Lakota ancestry. So, you know, we've been looking a lot into the stories and, and just, you know, like experiences that a lot of the, the native tribes had, uh, particularly in Canada with the, the rest schools, reservation mm -hmm. schools, where they, you know, they bring these kids in. And the whole idea was to like take the, take the savage out of them, right? So they would cut their hair to make it look more like how a white person, you know, how, how white men have their hair and they would dress them up and basically deleting their culture. That's essentially what we've done, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anytime you have this view that my culture is superior and my culture is the one God approves of, you're always going to find it difficult to engage in any contextual conversation about worship. We have to be willing to see the spirit of God at work in a in every culture within their diversity and to say okay within this culture and within its diversity what is god doing and how can we celebrate that and how can we you know how can we find um the you know what's the word i'm looking for the the grace of god inundating even here in this place that i'm completely unfamiliar with and when you look at it that way from within to see what is god up to here that's a completely different conversation than, oh man, look at these people, you know, everything they're doing is so wrong. So I'm, <laughs> you know, they've got to do yeah. it my way. Um, that, and, and I think like fundamentally, unless we make that shift, everything mm -hmm. else is always going to be very messy and noisy and difficult to, difficult to, you know, uh, piece together. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, man. And I think, you know, like you said, rules and worship, you know, like the Bible is full of them, but they're usually like, you know, for example, we go back to Cain and Abel. I've seen a lot of conservative preachers use the story of Cain and Abel to preach against contemporary Christian music. Uh, yeah. You know, Cain worshiped God the way he wanted and Abel worshiped God the way he requested. And God requested Basically, at the end of the day, if you could summarize the whole sermon, God requested that we worship him like 18th century Europeans. That's basically what they're saying, right? Like, yeah. and, and, and modern people today are wanting to worship God the way they want, you know? And, and it's like, well, first of all, that story has nothing to do with that. Like, not even close. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's any deep lesson you can get from that story, it's that we are to worship God in a way that elevates the all-sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, the lamb, rather than our right. own works, the fruit, yeah. right? the fruit of, you know, Cain's fruit. So, you know, that's that's the rule in, in that, you know, and then how you apply yeah. that rule is going to differ from culture to culture. But, you know, it's difficult to have that conversation if you see, if you have a Eurocentric worldview that sees our way of doing it as supreme. You know? So, yes, anyways, indeed. all right, let's get, let's get on to, oh, man, this next question, Max. Whew. Okay. <clears throat> so I had someone message and say, hey, uh, really reacting to our conversation on how racism has impacted. And, and really, this ties into a lot of what I just said as well. So this is, this yeah. is the question. Um, this isn't about racism. It's about history. Africa worshipped false gods and practiced witchcraft and voodoo until Christians showed up. All their music was designed to facilitate this demonic worship. You can't ignore this. Yeah, I mean, it's not really I a question. It's so much of a statement. No, but. <laughs> it's not a. It's not a question. I understand the kind of person that this comes from. Um, it's the comes from the kind of person who would say this isn't about racism, which already says a lot. But um, so one, you can't, you can't 
paint Africa with a single brush like that. Like every claim made in this so-called question contains some kind of anachronism or ahistorical nuance, right? So for example, Africa as a whole, apparently worshiped false gods and practice, which, okay. So one, the African continent has a diversity of religious and spiritual traditions. Yes. There's some paganism. Yes. There's some animism. There are things that would fall broadly into those categories, even though those categories are also kind of excessively broad and kind of hard to define at times, but it's not like there's not monotheistic traditions on the African continent, like one to cite Thomas Odin's work, there is a ton of North African and East African Christianity from basically the foundational era of Christianity up until largely the rise of Islam. But newsflash, after the rise of Islam, there was Islam, right? So there is plenty of monotheistic religious worship all across the African continent from East to West from like the seventh century, I think seventh century onward, basically, right? Like, it, like Islam has deep roots in Africa. So to paint everyone as some kind of polytheist is just straight up inaccurate, right? Um, and there are diasporic Jewish communities in Africa as well, since like the time of the exile, right? Like Isaiah 19 reports Jewish communities in Egypt and Ethiopia and like later parts of the Bible confirm Jewish communities in Egypt and Libya and like further west than that even, right? Um, and that's not to speak of Sephardic populations as well. And you have Jewish communities as far south as um, I want to say Zambia, the Lemba people. I could be I could be getting that wrong, but you can look it up. There are Southern African Jewish communities, mm-hmm. right? So like. It, one, there's monotheistic traditions all across Africa. So like, don't stereotype the whole continent. Two, um, witchcraft and voodoo, excessive, well, witchcraft is an excessively broad term that is largely about power more than about accurately describing religious practices. Uh, I don't think it's analytically useful. I understand that scripture uses it, but again, that's going to be dealing with like ancient Mesopotamian witchcraft and Canaanite witchcraft, not necessarily African witchcraft, which is going to have different mythologies and concepts behind it, right? Which is not to say I endorse that or say like, oh, that's something for Christians to engage with. But keep in mind, part of our conversation throughout this podcast was saying that the Bible does borrow from the cultural artifacts of paganism surrounding the the children of Israel and the apostles, like through from Old and New Testament, like it's just there. You have to look for it, but it's there, right? There yeah, is not right. like an immediate cultural ban on everything that might have a ban that have a ban. There's not a ban on everything that might have an origin in paganism. And if you think that that's true, then democracy is going to be a huge problem for you, buddy. But um, voodoo is a hyper-specific term that is referring to diasporic Africans, especially Haitians. And there is a very special particular kind of animosity that racists tend to have towards Haiti and the demonization of the Haitian people, which is a history. But anyways, one thing to keep in mind is that European Christianity has pretty much always had conceptual categories for the virtuous pagans. This is something we discussed when I brought up the example of Dante and the Inferno, for example. And the Western tradition has always looked to 
the study of class. I mean, the whole field of classics, right? Greco-Roman civilization, philosophy, a lot of it is the foundation of our civilization, right? And so like we've always had these conceptual categories for virtuous pagans when it comes to Europeans, but like where where is that nuance? Where is that wiggle room when it comes to Africa? Well, it's buried under a mountain of guess what? Racism. So this is like all, all of this is just ridiculously unnuanced. Um, and again, the direct line between African musical forms and modern music styles is not as like straight and like A causes B as people think it is, right? We spent time in our rhythm episodes talking about how syncopation is a part of the European music tradition and it mixed with polyrhythms from West, West Africa in New Orleans and in the Caribbean and in the new world in general, right? So it's a fusion of Africa and Europe that gives us rock and roll, that gives us jazz, that gives us blues. It's not just everything from Europe, good, everything from Africa, bad and pagan. Like that is a ridiculous oversimplification. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can read Lillian Dukan. She will tell you the exact same thing in her book. So again, th this argument itself, this question, quote unquote, because it's not a question, it's just an accusatory racist rant, is an accusatory racist rant. And it just requires a complete revisitation of how this person reads history. And that is my speech. Fantastic, man. I could not agree more. Um, now, I, I want to add a few comments and, and or make a few comments on that. But first, I actually want to go to a little bit of a break. I don't usually do this in our podcast episodes. Uh, I have like sort of like a mid-episode advertisement or promotion. Uh, but I want to do it now uh, because Max is actually going to be releasing a new podcast of his own. And he's got a cool little commercial that he's filmed for it and everything. So um, I just want to Take a moment right now uh, and, and pause this episode, go to that break, uh, let you guys hear a little bit about this new podcast episode that he's going to be, or podcast series actually, uh, podcast in general that he's going to be launching soon. And then we will return to our episode and continue our conversation. Hey, what's up, Story Church podcast listeners? My name is Max. And if you've been listening to Pastor Marcos's podcast for the last little while, You'll probably know me from our series, Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars. I'm excited to let you know that in the spring of this year, 2022, I will be launching my own podcast as well. The name of the podcast is going to be Noisegate, which is actually a sound effect that essentially mutes out unnecessary noise in between when someone is talking. I'm using a noise gate on this recording right now. With this new podcast, my goal is to facilitate deep, thoughtful, and intellectually informed discussions of Christian theology and spiritual practice while celebrating the arts and highlighting promising young creatives and thinkers. Both lofty and grounded, both abstract and practical, this podcast empowers people to filter out noisy nonsense while exploring meaningful questions. Listeners can expect the insight and depth of a trained theologian right alongside the colorful, vibrant passion of an artist. I hope you'll tune in to this new podcast, and I cannot wait to launch this thing for you. Once more, my name is Max, the host of the soon-to-be-launched podcast, Noisegate. You know, I think the sad thing about this is the reductionism inherent within it. It's like we can reduce the entire African experience, culture, articulation 
And it's not just the African, it's really non-European, right? Mm -hmm. um, I believe it's in the distraction dilemma where Christian Berdahl says, this isn't an African problem. He's talking about the drumming and syncopation and stuff. He says, mm -hmm. this isn't an African problem. Like all these ancient sort of pagan tribes did this. And what mm -hmm. he's attempting to do so much is say, this is a non-European problem. <laughs> That's essentially yeah. what he's saying, you know? Um, I remember that that clip like that moment from the distraction dilemma and he says and he specifically says like it happens here and over this says and japan and i was like excuse me sir but what in the entire earth do you think you could possibly be talking about right now because i know my people and we like our rhythms real simple i know you might have heard like that taiko drumming but it's not i don't think it's particularly known for being syncopated or polyrhythmic like it can be busy but lots of very busy drumming is not syncopated so anyway, it's just the lack of knowledge is uh, i mean it is to be expected at this point but it's still upsetting but whatever i'll leave it i'll leave them alone i'll leave them alone not what, what what I was gonna what I was gonna say with that as well is that you know when you reduce an entire culture to you guys practiced some form of pagan worship right um, and you worship false gods and um, you know whatever you however you want to frame it depending on where the, the the group of people come from and and therefore everything you ever did is tainted and corrupt and evil. And uh, if we take on any part of that, then we are welcoming the demonic influence that this is attached to. Uh, that's a super reductionistic way of looking at humanity, at culture, at religious expression, you know, at diversity, all of that, you know. Um, all cultures have extreme diversity in, in their food, in their dress, in their expression, uh, even their language. Um, you know, there's, there's cultures that perceive time differently from how Europeans perceive time, and it, mm -hmm. it impacts their language, right? The, the language actually evolves differently because they don't see time as this thing you're fighting against. Um, and so, you know, this thing you're in competition with, and so it, it, it evolves differently. And that mm -hmm. impacts, you know, the way they think, the way they see the world, the way they relate to the world around them, the way they relate to each other, you know, the way they relate to, to people outside their tribe, and it impacts their, you know, their rituals and their traditions and their worship. And really, I love how Tim Keller put it in one of his books. I think it's the book Center Church, where he says, mm -hmm. you know, we have to approach every culture as, as Christians um, with, with what he terms as cautious enjoyment. Because mm -hmm. what he means by that is you recognize that every single culture on the earth, and the European culture is no exception, has elements of it that are reflective of our fallen nature, and elements of it that are reflective of the imago, you know, the, the image of God within mm -hmm. us. Um, and so when you recognize, you know, the imago day in the pagan culture, then you know, like, no matter how fallen a culture is, the fingerprints of God are here. And mm -hmm. his, his, you know, he, he made them creative, he made them inventive, he made them to take the world around them and do something beautiful with it, right? To actually have an effect on their environment and that's going to reflect in how they do music and how they do food and how they do dress and how they do dances all these different things so mm -hmm. for me i think the more proper way of approaching this is to say yeah maybe they, you know we can have the conversation about elements of you know different cultures around the world that are out of harmony with the gospel you know uh, i think you know I, I remember watching a documentary where 
I was talking about different cultures in the world, um, even to this day that are deeply patriarchal. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't remember all the details, but, you know, you had things like female genital mutilation that still mm-hmm. takes place in some cultures um, and things like where they put the rings around the necks to stretch the neck of the women. I don't remember the exact culture, um, but they were describing how um, in, in, in a lot of instances, this is used as a power tool. Right. So like mm-hmm. if a woman is unfaithful to her husband, um, then they remove those rings. And because her Mm. neck muscles have never been uh, developed because it's been placed there since she was a child, then she basically can't, you know, she dies, you know, she needs the rings in order for her neck to work. Um, So you look at these things and you're like, you know, and of course I say that assuming that the documentary itself wasn't whitewashed, you know, assuming it's not like, yeah, putting a (laughs) spin on like Um, xenophobic spin on things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, you gotta be careful with that, but you Mm. know, to take it on good faith, you would look at that and say, okay, um, the gospel challenges that the gospel says, you know, you know, like it's, it's, it's not, that's not how we should treat women. And that's not, you know, general mutilation, things like that. Like the gospel definitely challenges that, but that doesn't mean I look at the entire culture and say, everything that comes through this culture is therefore evil. We're going to throw it out. No, because if you look Mm -hmm. deeply enough, you'll also find within that culture, the the image of God reflected everywhere. And it's the question is, all right, like how can we celebrate that and then allow this culture from within itself and the people to take the gospel of Jesus, to take his challenge to them, articulate it and apply it in their own way. We've never done that. Like that's never happened. Right. Like it's it's like, for me, like what's one of my like sort of nerdy missiological contextual things is like, what would it look like for the gospel to go to the whole world and for the people that receive it to take it, apply it and articulate it in their own way without Mm -hmm. some other culture coming along and saying, you have to do it this way. Like, what would it look like? Like how much beauty would there be, you know, (laughs) on the Mm -hmm. earth if it had been done that other way? But anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to rant now. Um, I'm with you, man. But yeah, I agree with you. I think, yeah. So what they did voodoo. So what, you know, like, okay. Um, there's within all of that, Satan doesn't get the last word. He doesn't get the final claim. You know, mm-hmm. the spirit of God is there and he's working and there's beauty in everything that these cultures are doing. And there's things that, that, you know, the gospel certainly addresses and challenges. It does it for all of us. It does it for European culture too. You know, like European mm-hmm. culture isn't somehow immune to the gospel being, Hey, all of these things about you totally out of harmony with the heart of God, you know, right. Uh, we, we all have to contend with that. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question here. Cause we got a, we got a, a bunch more <laughs> power through. Um, this is it's just too exciting. Sometimes you just, you know, you keep going. So, um, I feel you. okay. So here's the next question. Oh man. Oh, okay. The sanctuary gives mm-hmm. us rules for worship. Oh, when David danced before God, he was not in the sanctuary. Oh, no. Worship in the sanctuary is what we should practice in church today. And of course, what Tell- they're referring to here, and I've heard a lot of sermons, I'm sure you have to, they're referring to in the sanctuary, you know, you have to be like really quiet and reverent and all these things. And like when David danced before God, he wasn't in the sanctuary. So you can't use yeah. that as a, you know, as a reason to say, you know, we, we can, we can dance in church or something. Anyways, I'm sure you've right. heard it plenty of times before. Give me your thoughts. Tell me you've never read the Bible without telling me you've never read the Bible. 
Oh my goodness. This is so bad. It is just like catastrophically bad. Okay. Look at this statement. The worship in the sanctuary is what we should practice in church today, bro. There is an entire book of Hebrews that says absolutely 100% not under any circumstances. Can that statement ever be true? Worship in the sanctuary is animal sacrifice and to continue in animal sacrifice would be to deny that Christ has died for sins once and for all. Like that is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Not the whole thing, but it's a major, major theme. Like how, how ironic is it that we're discussing this while the book of Hebrews is the adult Sabbath school lesson right now at the time of recording. Right. Um, but I'm just like, bro, what? I don't think people think about what they're saying when they say this. Do you understand if you actually applied this principle and actually read the Bible, there would be no Toronto Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. There would be no like Berrien Springs Village Church. There would be no whatever location because the stipulation in Deuteronomy is over and over again. The place that the Lord your God selects, there is just Jerusalem. You don't have a temple altar anywhere else besides the place that the Lord selects. That is such an important theme in Torah. Like you don't get to build altars other places, right? And therefore animal sacrifice, which is completely antithetical to the belief that Messiah has come according to a Christian understanding of like Jesus's Messiahship. So no, this is just like completely bonkers looking for arbitrary, theologically unrelated ways to police people's behavior. They just say, David danced before God. He was not in the sanctuary. Okay. That doesn't like, was the dancing immoral? Was it, was it unacceptable to God or not? Because guess what? We don't worship God in the Jerusalem tabernacle, and our churches are not the equivalent of that. And the rooms that we call sanctuary aren't actually God's sanctuary. For goodness sake, read Solomon's temple dedication prayer in the books of Kings. He literally says, I know you technically don't live here because no building on earth could contain you. The earth is your footstool. That's literally in the dedication prayer for the Jerusalem temple. So, like, how could you go and say that? such and such fourth street first seventh day adventist church is is now god's dwelling place and be quiet inside because you might wake him up because he literally sleeps there like you would think that we have a sanctuary theology and people would have understood what it meant and what it doesn't mean but it it seems to me like people don't understand the first thing because this is like as far as biblical typology goes this does not work at all at least within an Adventist framework. So like this is like, this requires, as far as Adventism is concerned, this requires remedial theology immediately. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say this, because I've heard this before. Yeah. And here's usually my response. I say, okay, I'm going to do it your way. We're going to organize a youth rally, not in the church building. We're going to organize a youth rally in the park and we're going to have our really, you know, sort of fun contemporary worship and we're going to dance before the Lord, but we're not in the church building. So it should be okay. I mean, you said David danced before God, but he wasn't in the sanctuary. So if I follow your line of thinking, what you're saying is, yeah, go ahead, dance. Just don't do it in the church building. Okay, fine. So I'm going to go organize a youth rally in the park. And we're going mm-hmm. to dance before God. 
And at that moment, they suddenly remember people? that God is everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And like, how many of those people who use this argument would say, absolutely, that's totally fine. None of no. them. All right. They would all be like, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You can't worship God. So like at the end of the day, it's really got nothing to do with the sanctuary, man. No, it got nothing it to do with the sanctuary. It's got to do with a Eurocentric way of understanding holiness and sacredness and worship and trying to enforce that onto everybody. That's trying to control to people. With. But even then, like that's only if I went with their line of thinking, uh, but the line of thinking is faulty on multiple fronts. First of all, David yeah. might not have danced before the san- uh, in the sanctuary, uh, but he danced before the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence <laughs> literally, you know, like dwelled, you know, like he dwelled that in goes the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. Was <laughs> on, you know, that was like his throne, right? Like the, the, the throne was yeah. on the top of it with the cherubs. He danced before that, you know, and, and he's dancing because of what God has done for him, you know, and, and all the pain that he'd been through in the previous year with Azza and, and all of that stuff, all that agony and yeah. anxiety and how God got him through. Like he's, he's, he's worshiping, he's praising God because of that. And he's excited and he's happy and he's jumping up and down and he's dancing before God. And literally the person who judged him for it got cursed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think the entire thing is, is ridiculous. And if you use, like, if, if you hyper apply the sanctuary, you, you run into all kinds of problems. Like you said, the center of the sanctuary was, was animal sacrifice. Um, it, it was also only men allowed inside of the sanctuary, right? The women right. had to stay on the outer court. Um, and even then, it wasn't simply that it was only men. It was only Jewish men. And more to the point, it was only Levite Jewish men, you know? So it's like, what are we saying when we apply this to the church? We're just going to pick and choose. Oh, so the worship in the sanctuary had to be very, you know, somber and quiet. We're going to take that and apply it without any nuance to the way we worship in church today. But we'll ignore all the other things because they magically don't apply anymore. I'm like, this is horrible way of doing Theology is a horrible way of applying the Bible. The bottom line is, and I've actually got an article that I'm publishing tomorrow on this very thing. The church buildings that we do worship in, and I'm going to make mm-hmm. this really, really clear. And if you want more details, check out that article. It's going to be, just go on my Facebook page and you'll see it. it's called um, uh, The Truth About Church Revealed Part 3. Um, here's the bottom line, guys. The church building that we do our worship services in, it is not the house of God. Okay, it is not the temple. It is not the sanctuary. God never asked for centralized church buildings in all of scripture. He never requested them. He never gave blueprints for them. He never said these. I want you to build me these houses all over the place. No, he did not. They are not the equivalent of the sanctuary. The church plays a completely different role in redemption history to what the sanctuary played. So when we make these sweeping hyper applications between one and the other, we end up with all kinds of headaches and problems and ridiculous arguments that have nothing to do with anything. My rant is over. If you want more information on that, check out my article. Um, well done. Max, shall we move on to the next question? Because the clock is- We ticking. shall. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. So this one came, I forgot who sent this question through, um, but I've summarized it. The person was- you know, I've summarized the question. The person was sincere. Like they, so I want to engage this one with, with, you know, um, some understanding of where they're coming from. They were sincerely trying to put some pieces together and, and try and understand how mm-hmm. this all works. So this was their question. Um, is music ever 
evil? Is there anything to look out for? Or are you suggesting that there's no danger at all to look out for and just, just essentially have fun? Now, I did summarize that, condensed it. It was a little bit broader sure. than that. The question was a bit more nuanced. And I'm only mentioning that because in the condensed version, it can seem a bit pointed. Um, but the person sure. was being sincere. It's like, you know, okay, so like, you know, culture and things and diversity and stuff. But like, is there ever anything that we should be careful with, you know, whether it's rhythmic mm -hmm. or whether it's, you know, stylistic or lyrical? Like, well, yeah. So anyways, have at mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so one of the arguments that I think musicians have used for a long time to kind of get out of the conservative, like intellectual trap is like, oh, music is a tool, right? A hammer isn't inherently good or bad. Um, it's how it's used, right? You can build something, you can kill someone, et cetera, right? And I think as much as that's used, sorry, I like burped in the microphone. Um, as much as that's used um, to kind of get out of the, like, the hyper-conservative argument and be like, oh, no, it's not inherently evil. That's also a guideline for you to answer this question, which is like, yeah, music can be evil when it is used for evil, right? It's like it, it's it's wrong when it's used for something wrong, when it's applied in a way that is like more harmful than good. The question is, how easy is it to actually determine when that's happening? Because art, music is an art form and art is interpretive, right? So like you could have any number of pieces of music that from certain perspectives are going to come across as like they're, they're going to affect people in different ways, right? We have a song in the Adventist hymnal called Battle Hymn of the Kingdom of God. Oh, no, sorry. Battle Hymn of the Kingdom of Heaven. Oh, no. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And it's written in a military style. And like to some people that might just be like, oh, yeah, we are soldiers for Christ. We must stand up and wear the banner proudly. And it, it evokes that feeling. But for someone else, I could be like, oh, yeah, the, you uh wiped my people off the face of the earth, or tr at least you tried to, right? And like the, the language and imagery of militarism in Christianity comes across as just like unequivocally evil, right? And that's a hymn. And it's one of those things that you have to be cognizant of. Um, you know, it is an explicitly like hypersexual R&B or rap song inherently wrong, maybe in some context, but what about in the bedroom of a married couple who are experimenting and trying to liven things up a bit? Is that wrong? Cause they're doing it in that con like it's who, who is to say, right? All art is interpretive. So music can have an evil effect, even if the music itself is not evil, right? Good music can have a harmful effect. Um, a lot of it has to do with the experiences people have with it. So it's one of those things where you don't get to decide what is right and wrong on a genre level or on a culture level or at the level of like, oh, if you hear this type of chord or this type of interval or this type of beat, well, then you just know there's no easy hack. You have to use wisdom and evaluate things on a case-by-case -case basis, right? And you have to understand that the same piece of music in different contexts could have different connotations, could have a different effect on people. Um, and that's really like your interpretation of harm or benefit has to be person centric, right? Um, something could be very neutral or very beneficial or very harmful, depending on who is interacting with it. 
Um, and I know that's not like the hard answer, the definite, like, here's the boundary lines, but it's the kind of answer that says, no, this is about wisdom. This is about context. This is about application. Um, and so I would say, like, try to lean into that a little bit more. Um, yeah, casuistic I, I totally reinterpretation. Agree, I think part of the difficulty is that oftentimes within, especially if you grew up in a sort of fundamentalist conservative culture, you're mm -hmm. used to just always being given the formula. You're mm -hmm. not taught how to think, you're taught what to think. Mm -hmm. And so what this eventually frames for a lot of people is a religious experience in which um, you, there's, there's very clear lines or boundaries that you stay within in order to stay in God's good side. Um, yeah. And when someone comes along and says, there's no clear boundary, the anxiety rises. Cause it's like, well, how do I know I'm staying in God's good side? You know? Right. But this is a fundamentalist problem. The, the, the reality is that for the vast majority of things, there really mm -hmm. isn't that clear cut, you know, there's obvious things, you know, we don't have to go into a, into, into the, the, the sort of obvious things that are like wrong and evil, but there's also things that are like very gray and they're contextual and they have to be taken on a person by person, case by case basis. There isn't a neat formula or a neat line for everything. And so reason, discernment, all of these things have to come into play. And this is essentially saying that we have to learn not necessarily what to think in this context, what to think about music, but how to think about music. Because mm -hmm. when you know how to think about it and how to contextualize and how to reason and how to use discernment and how to you know, weigh up the complexity of things like culture and context and setting and, and, and even a person's background, all of those things come into play and you can make mm -hmm. wise decisions by weighing those things up. But there isn't always like this blanket line, like the moment you hear a syncopated beat, you know, that's it. Run away. It's like it's not that simple, you know. Yeah. Um, I actually remember years ago I was in the emergency room. Um, I don't remember why. I think it was for one of my kids. And this lady sat next to me and we got to talking. Um, and as we were talking, she eventually, you know, discovered that I'm a pastor. So she asked me, mm -hmm. oh, what church do you go to? And, you know, I tell her. And then she says, um, oh, I've been I've been looking for a church, but I've been bouncing around and just trying to find a, a place where where I really feel like I belong, because a lot of the churches she was going to, she felt like I, I don't really belong there. I'm not I don't feel welcomed. Um, and I asked her why. And her answer blew my mind. Um, so she had mental health challenges. That's actually why mm. she was in the ED. She was having a, a mental health, big mental health struggles. Um, mm -hmm. And she felt like she was just in over her head. She needed some help. So she came to the ED and she said, like, look, I've been dealing with like depression and things for a long time. And when I go to a church that just sings hymns, I get more depressed. Mm -hmm. Like the, the style of the song and the, the, the tempo of the song, it just like it puts me in a dark place. And so, but when I go to a church that has contemporary songs that are happier, more upbeat, like, mm -hmm. I feel like that actually lifts my spirit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's wild. Like, I never thought that, you know, the, the slowness or the somberness of a hymn could actually affect someone's mental health in a negative way. And some people listening to this, you know, even myself included could be like, man, there's times where I feel really depressed or anxious 
where I like, I put some hymns on on purpose because they, you know, like they fill me with peace, you know? Right. So the point is like, we're all so different, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and when you make these blanket generalizations or these formulas um, that are supposed to work in every setting, it might make it comfortable for you in your little bubble, but it doesn't work in the world. It doesn't work in real life. People are different. Needs are different. Um, mental health, all, all these things come into play. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, man. I think, you know, for me, obviously, you know, like if someone is singing about like, you know, shooting cops and, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, and driving down the street and picking up women, you know, like, obviously I'm not going to listen to that, you know? Um, there's obvious things, but then there's things that are, that are less obvious. And and one of the things that I often tell people is just because a song isn't necessarily like appropriate for worship doesn't mean it's evil. It's exactly like you said, like I wouldn't sing a song that's, you know, maybe very sensual in a church gathering, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't, that it's evil in every setting it could actually be really really nice song to play while i'm having dinner with my wife you know so it's like it's just we got to be more nuanced you know and 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 and, yeah anyways i think i think we've made our point all right let me get get to the next question here um i think this next question actually relates to this previous one and this is one Mm. that i have seen in a lot of the conservative um presentations about music this is a illustration that's I've seen used so many times. So I'd love to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on it. Um, yeah. If music doesn't affect emotions, which by the way, we never said that. Yeah. I want to be clear here. All right. We never yeah. said that. Um, but I think what the person here is trying to ask is if, if all styles of music are okay and they, they, they don't have a bad effect on our emotion or something like that, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyways, if music doesn't affect emotions, why do mu- movies use different styles and different scenes? Aren't they creating an emotional reaction? How does this impact worship music? So for example, I'm sure you've seen it as well. You know, some of these like really conservative seminars on music and they'll say, oh, here's a scene from a movie and listen to how the background music, you know, amplifies yeah. the anxiety. Maybe it's a horror scene or maybe, you know, it's a war scene. And if you put like, Jesus loves me, this I know to the scene, it kills the scene, you know? So it's like, oh, see, music does affect your emotion and it can make you more anxious or it can make you angry and all these things. And so music styles that do that um, don't belong in worship or or in the Christian experience. That's, I think, the premise of this question. So go for it. Yeah. Well, I think that's it's telling that you have to do so much heavy lifting to save the question from its own self-contradiction, right? Like that's that's pretty telling that you have to contextualize the question so much so that it doesn't fall apart under the weight of its own absurdities. Because like, yeah, if music does, if like, if music doesn't affect emotions, pause. Let me stop you there, buddy. As my friend Marcos just told you, we never said that. In fact, I would go as far as to say my position for anyone who's listening from this more traditionalist camp. Hear me loud and clear. Music doesn't do anything but affect our emotions. That's literally 100% of what it's for. It serves no other function whatsoever besides affecting our emotions. Absolutely without, like, I can barely think of anything that would qualify as an exception to that. So my objection to this argument is not, oh, no, don't worry. It doesn't affect you. It's like, no, it affects you. That's why it's awesome. 
That's why it's enjoyable. You need to get out of your Neoplatonism and stop being afraid of the human body. Stop being afraid of your emotions. Go read the Hebrew Bible for what it actually is. Go read Lamentations. Go really reflect on all the Psalms and don't try to turn it into a time prophecy or something, right? Like, go actually engage with the way scripture handles human emotions. Go observe the grieving practices of ancient Israel. Go observe like the imprecatory Psalms and their rage and the abject despair in Lamentations and the existential dread of Ecclesiastes and the exuberant joy of some of the prophets in their visions of the future. Like it's just emotion is this beautiful thing. And we have this incredible tool in music to affect emotion, to direct emotion, to explore the depths and the nuances and the complexities of emotion. That's what it's for. Evoking those emotions isn't wrong. Evoking those emotions is a human activity, right? And sometimes if you haven't felt intense forms of sadness for a long time, if everything is going so great for you, maybe you need to be reminded of like, oh yeah, right. This is what happens when something really terrible happens and someone has to grieve. Like there's an empathic power there. I think there's a a way to remind you that people have different experiences than you, you know? I, yeah, I think this, there's a lot of problems with this kind of question, but like, ultimately I think it, it comes back down to the fact that like, music is all about affecting emotions. That's what we are trying to do in using it. Why are you afraid of emotions? I know people, because from one of our earlier questions, they're like emotionalism. I was like, you need to get that ism suffix out of your head because it makes it sound like it's some kind of like conspiratorial philosophy that's coming to steal your soul, right? But emotion is part of what and who you are. And moreover, part of what God made you to be. You shouldn't be ruled by your emotions. You shouldn't be dominated by your emotions. But that's part of why we have the arts in the first place, so that we can describe the emotions so that we can put words to melody and connect the intellect to the emotion, right? That's why we don't like we could vocalize with no lyrics. We could just, ah, we could do that all day. And there's a beauty to it, but we can also take something intellectual like lyrics and poetry and tie it to a melody. That's what songwriting is, is melding together the brain and the heart. Like the, the, that's, that's the point. Like we're, we're trying to connect the intellect and the gut. You know, like we're trying to bring the whole person together and maybe even like the whole body if you dance to the song or maybe a community if they reflect on the song or like someone improvises, right? Look at what happens in gospel music where you could have a repeated chorus that the whole church is singing together and yet they're reinforcing the ad lib, the storytelling that the lead singer is doing and saying like, I went through this. There's intellect there. There's spirit there. There's emotion there. There's physicality there. All of it comes together. That's the point. That's what makes music beautiful. Um, I fear so much that the people who think this way have never had the experience of actually like taking in the effervescence and the beauty of communally shared music that is stirring and powerful. So yeah, this, this is the kind of thing that people need to give themselves a chance to really feel something. Sorry, I had to unmute my, myself there for a sec. Yeah, no, I uh, totally agree, man. Um, now we're almost out of time. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, 
I usually comment after each of them, but I'm going to go ahead and jump onto the last one because I actually think you did a great, great answer on that previous one. So I don't have sure, really much to add there. And we've got one more question that I think is more like a, a practical question that I think it'd be really good to touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what about musicians in the music industry mm-hmm. who say this mm-hmm. music is demonic? Mm-hmm. Lots of anti-contemporary Christian music speakers constantly quote from producers and musicians who claim the music is satanic. Um, and I've heard stories of people say, oh, yeah, you know, we had a you know pagan priest come in and bless this album and, you know, yeah. all sorts of stuff like that. They, they, they make these claims. Mm-hmm. Can we ignore this? Um, I I mean, quite frankly, yeah, I do ignore it because half of the times people will quote like musicians and I'll just be like, oh, yeah, that person exists. Oh, I really don't care about that person at all or their opinion. And, and this is the thing. People will quote these things as if they're quoting like an anti-scripture, as if they're quoting like uh, the Bible of rock and roll or something. But like modern music styles don't have a canon. There is no canon of rock and roll. There is no canon of hip hop. Like for good, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame enshrines hip hop artists. How does that make any sense? Right. But that's like there is no formalized creed of modern music. People disagree with each other about what it's for. For goodness sake, walk into like any room full of old guys and ask the question, what is rock and roll really? And you will get like a lot of passionate, different answers. Like, I don't care what John Lennon or Jimi Hendrix or Ozzy Osbourne or whoever said about like, oh, I did this. I don't care what David Bowie said. I don't care who any of these people are and their self-aggrandizing evaluation was like, oh, the power of the devil comes through my music. Yeah, I'm still not going to buy it, buddy. Like, I know you think that makes it sound cool, but one, I can see through a marketing scheme when I see it. And two, if you really think that, then you're full of yourself. Like, you don't get to define what an entire genre of music is for everybody else. Nobody is even obligated to like your music or think that it's good. Right. Like, I don't care what the Beatles said about like their music being this, that or the other thing or whatever. It's like, who cares? Like, I know like four of their songs, probably more. They're pretty ubiquitous. But like, I don't care. Like at the end of the day, you can only have so many influences. And while there are very influential artists who have like, you know, their their effect can be felt across their genre. Sure, that's true. That's for real. But again, that doesn't mean that people are all using it for the same thing. I think what's happening here with the evangelists who will quote this stuff will be like, they're trying to justify this like naturalist or like essentialist reading of a music style or of a culture. And they're saying like, oh, every time this style appears, it always has to mean this. I'm like, bro, we can't even get straight like what culture or what racial group is denoted by a music style, right? Like rock and roll, like there are people now saying like, oh, rock and roll was always about the angst of the white man, right? You get like these conservative pundits who are saying these things. I'm like, like, do you understand how far removed from the origins of rock and roll you are going when you say that rock and roll is about the angst of the white man? But that hasn't stopped rock from becoming a white dominated music genre. Like, yeah, absolutely. Today, rock music is coded as white. And there is now a resurgence of black artists who are trying to like reclaim a place in the genre. And there has been for a long time. And there have always been like people of color of all races in rock music, but the, the stereotypes, right? 
the, the social coding, but that's what it is. It's social coding and stereotypes and the things people bring to it and assumptions. When an artist says like, oh yeah, I, I wrote this album as a way of channeling my ancestral shamanism from ancient Celtic Ireland. And I consulted with the priest from that. It was like, cool, you did that. But one, I don't believe that you did all of that. Like, come on, buddy, you, you were in the studio smoking weed and like fiddling with your bass tuning. Like, give me a break. It, it's so self-indulgent. And then to give credibility to it as it's like, oh, these artists are such bad people and they're in league with Satan. But also they were honest enough to let us know what's really going on. But you know, what they'll say is like, they're being so blatant about it. They're letting you know they're not even ashamed of it. They won't even hide it. And I'm like, bro, that's because it's pretentious. That's because it's hubris. It's it's like self-aggrandizing. It's adding mythology to the persona. And granted, I'm sure there's people who really believe in it. But like at the end of the day, you have to be able to see through a marketing ploy when it's there. Um, and again, rock music and hip hop and EDM, none of them have a canon. The other artists around those artists don't have to agree with that artist's assessment of the meaning of the genre. Because again, all art is interpretive. And I've rambled. But I, I feel like the point is pretty well made. So, no, absolutely, man. And, you know, I think oftentimes we are going to gravitate to the voices that give some sort of fodder to the preconceived idea that we're trying to communicate. Um, yeah. And you're absolutely right. A lot of times this stuff's marketing, you know, um, a lot of times this is it's about sales and it's about like, how can we maximize the sales? How can we create a cult following? Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people will say and do anything to sort of like, yeah, create that mythology around them and create that cult following and, and sell more albums. And that doesn't mean that there isn't the occasional time where maybe there is someone who really does believe, you know, like, oh mm -hmm. yeah, I really do believe this, but they're not speaking for an entire genre and they're not speaking for an entire style. And, and to mm -hmm. that, I would also add, you know, going back and we mentioned this in one of the previous episodes that we recorded that, um, uh, hymns itself in the in the in the in the book uh, a survey of christian hymnody you find in the first chapter like hymn hymnology the very concept of hymnology comes from pagan greek worship and mm -hmm. and so you know if we're going to use this line you know like uh, if we're, we're going to use this argument um cohesively then we have to discard hymns because hymnology as a concept is originally a pagan greek thing you know they they practice they practice this in the pagan greek temples and you know what kind of things happen in the pagan greek temples well lots of stuff and some of it pretty you know certainly out of alignment with where jesus wanted to be you know you had things like ritual prostitution and you know all these these different you know like types of scenarios i've read accounts where at least allegedly people would in these worship sessions um or these these rituals uh, become possessed and you know what were they singing they were singing hymns maybe they didn't sound exactly like a white hymn but the very concept of hymnology is rooted there and so if we're going to take the position that anything that's rooted that has some sort of connection etc has to be discarded um man we will find life almost impossible to navigate and we will find that so much of what we do even in conservative church is rooted in some sort of pagan or 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 um non-european background uh, so i agree with you man i think that's and i think that's an interesting you know or, or at least nuance that we need to wrestle with it's like you know did you mean non-christian background um 
Did I say, did I, what, what did I say? I said non-European. You said non-European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Non-Christian is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. So everything, you know, like so much is, is rooted in there in, in some way, shape or form. So yeah, uh, I think if a lot of times people want to, you know, just kind of like highlight on the little bit that's going to make their position more sensational and more mm. like even more marketable as well. Like, you know, of course you're going to include these voices in your DVD series. You can market it better because that's what yeah. they're doing. They're marketing. It's sensationalism. Too, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're just capitalizing on someone else's sensationalism. Absolutely. And, and to that, um, you know, we're, we're not sitting here saying, Hey, go listen to all those artists. Like that's, that's not even what we're advocating. You know, our, our position is that, Musical styles are complex phenomenons and generations and cultures, and that there's ways that we can contextualize and express ourselves according to our culture. And it can include styles that are similar to, you know, what you're hearing on the radio, uh, because those styles aren't owned by the people that in the music industry or the radio. So anyways, we could go on and on about that. Um, But I think, yeah, I think you made that point really well. I've got one more question, and then we'll wrap up. Let me know if that's good for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're the one who's under more pressure than me. I, I am. I am under more pressure than me. So I've got five minutes, exactly five minutes left. So here's the final <laughs> question. So someone sent cool. me a question and it's not here on the list, but I just remembered mm. it. Um, and the question was along the lines of, okay, um, practically speaking, my local church, mm. young people want this worship, older people want that worship. What do we do? What is the best way forward? Oh boy. Yeah. So the pastoral question, uh, ironically, I think this is the best question of the bunch, right? Absolutely. Like, I, I agree. Think That's this why is, I saved it for last. It's like, this unfortunate is that we don't have as, as much time, but I'll try to do this justice. Uh, one, I think people need to have the patience to allow a worship culture to emerge naturally from their local context. And that means having patience to work with the people who you do have and the musicians who you do have. So, you know, it's like the, the, the youth want worship this way and the old folks want worship this way. It's like, okay, well, I mean, the short answer is find some kind of compromise or find some way to split things up, uh, find some way to help them get involved with each other's things so they can learn from each other, right? Don't just segregate them off, but like say like, hey, do a little bit of contemporary stuff in a way that's like palatable for the older folks. And I mean, here's the thing there's a stereotype that like young people don't like the hymns. And the fact of the matter is like most of us do like the hymns. There's one worship leader at Andrews while I was there. um, And she would often lead out when they would have the Caribbean Sabbath during black history month at new life fellowship. Right. And people would ask her these questions being like, Oh, you know, uh, when you do the Caribbean Sabbath worship, like, why is there no like soca and and reggae and and stuff like that? Like, why is it all hymns? And she's like, because that's what we like, right? And she's like, I I don't think like you have a stereotype of the Caribbean in your head, but we love the hymns. We do them in a modernized style, in a contextualized style that has Caribbean flavor to it, but we like the hymns, right? And that's just something people leave up. Like, no, like most of us, like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm the probably the most vocal death metal guy in all of Adventism. Like I'm probably the most publicly noticeable metal dude in Adventism at this point. And I love the hymns. Like, I think they're great songs. I, I, so I have no problem leading those out. And I think most young people don't have a problem leading out traditional worship according to whatever it is. Just give them the leeway to do something that's for them too, right? If it means having an AY thing in the afternoon, if it means giving them a Friday night or a Saturday night get together where they don't have to cater to everybody, not everything is for everybody. The hymns are not for everybody. 
right? So just give them room to try something out. It involves negotiation. It involves teamwork. It involves leadership. It involves patience and communication. But all of those are things that our churches have to do anyways. Like if your church isn't doing those things, then what, what are, why do you exist? Right? Like, and at the end of the day, it's just interpersonal conflict resolution. I'm not a coach on those things. I can't tell you how to do that, but like one, the, the first step would be to say, make sure you aren't approaching your youth with a bunch of false assumptions and complete misconceptions about what music even is or how it works. Right. So come in with a reasonable knowledge base, but then, you know, let them try a couple new songs, See, let them try a few things and maybe make mistakes that are maybe not contextually appropriate and say, okay, we just won't do that again. And that means advocating for the people who get way too offended way too easily, right? The elderly snowflakes, because there's a lot of those that go unacknowledged. Um, yeah, you just have, there has to be some level of advocacy saying, we're going to let them try things. We're going to let them try things until we find the common ground that works and then as a aside, some of the musicians in our church just want to do contemporary worship music. And some of the young musicians in our church want to do music in a broader sense and want to do it as a career, or they want to be an artist, not necessarily in the confines of the church. You can also empower your youth to be ambassadors as members of the local music scene. Maybe what they're doing is too far-fetched to really work in a church worship service. Maybe there's a kid who wants to be a rapper. And how do you get a crowd of people who don't really like rap to rap along to something? It's just not practical but in terms of the actual style. But you can empower that person as an ambassador, as a missionary, as someone who can occupy space in like the local music scene. Maybe put them on like a cultural festival that your church is involved with in the city, right? Like you, you can do things as a member of the community to get your young people in front of people and give them the opportunity to use their gifts in a way that is context appropriate. And, but again, all of that revolves around relationship. All of that revolves around building healthy relationships, navigating conflict in mature, healthy ways. And really, at the end of the day, when it comes to the practical side of the worship debate, all of it comes back down to healthy, mature, intellectually informed leadership. And, and that's really kind of what the life of the church hinges on anyways. All right, everyone, that is it. This is the end of our question and answer episode, and it is also the end of deconstructing the adventist worship wars i hope you guys enjoyed it from the emails and comments and shares that i've been seeing and also just the sheer volume of listens that this series has had i know it's been an incredible blessing to so many of you don't forget to head to the storychurchproject.com podcast where you can click the link that leads you straight to all of the resources that come alongside this pot in our series there's a lot that we weren't able to cover because it's just impossible to cover absolutely everything. If we tried, this Padanar series would be going for another two or three months, and there would just be like a hundred episodes, and that's just a bit too much. But we have linked lots of different resources, including books, videos, and other resources that you can tap into to learn a whole lot more about this topic and to anchor yourself in a very balanced a culturally sensitive approach to this topic, but ultimately an approach that really reflects the, the heart of God for our cultures, for our diversity, for our humanity. So I hope you guys have been blessed. I'm going to be going on a little bit of a podcast break, and then I will be back for a new season with the brilliant Nicole 
Parker, an entire Potternar series wrestling with the idea of headship theology, how that impacts the mission in our church, how it impacts the way we view each other, the way we view the, the women's ordination debate, and so much more. I really cannot wait to release those episodes uh, with myself and Nicole Parker. It's going to be an absolute blast, so stay tuned for the next Potternar season where we will be deconstructing headship theology in the Adventist church. All right, guys, take care. God bless. Until the next one. <laughs>